I'm Cindy Boxer, and you are listening to the Fiber Artist Podcast, where we chat with artists, makers, and creatives who work with fiber, get to know their stories, how they came upon their fiber practice, and more about the person behind the work. Well, hello there, my fellow fiber creatives. Ah, what an amazing artist I got to speak with this week. Her creativity, drive, and discipline are so enviable. She's a true expert of the art of nodding. The fabulous Wendy Chen. You guys, this woman has forged an incredible path in fiber art practice. Her large-scale works hang in the chicest hotels, restaurants, and retail spaces across the country. And she has a book coming out this fall called Year of Knots, documenting her fiber journey. So look out for that. But real quick before we start, did you know that Marianne Moody is coming to the States this summer? She is one of our modern generation's most influential weavers, and she will be coming um, to NYC and LA the first and second week of June, all the way from Australia to teach a series of weaving workshops from beginner to intermediate and even fiber sculpture. Hmm. And she still has a handful of spots left. You can actually register on her website, MarianneMoody.com, and use the code NEROMA to get 10% off your class fee. That's N-I-R-O-M-A to get 10% off. You guys, the opportunity to be taught by Marianne Moody does not come along every day. Make sure you grab your seat before the classes sell out. I am sure they're going to be amazing. Okay, now here we go. Here's Wendy Chen. Hi, Wendy. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's like such a, I'm so excited to have you on um, because I've been following your work for such a long time. So thank you so much for making the time. Um, oh, hi, Cindy. Thank hi. you for having me. You know, you have such a strong online presence that I there's parts of you that I feel like I know already, but it's really nice to actually speak directly. Thank you so much. So, well, this is the first time you and I have ever spoken, really, and we yeah. don't even really DM that much or anything like that. So I feel like this is like so awesome to get to know you beyond just the squares that I've been following on Instagram. Um, so, you know, I know that you listen to the podcast a bit, so you know that I'd like to sort of go back into the background of your life and just get to know a little bit about how you came to be like the amazing knot tiger that you are and the amazing fiber artist that you are. Um, so let's go, let's go way back. Like, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Oh, sure. I'm, um, so I'm, Chinese American, and I'm come from a family of immigrants. My father was in the U.S. military, so I've lived all over the country, um, and yeah, so that kind of upbringing. Um, there are no artists in my family except for my grandma, who is kind of a weekend warrior type. You know, she always had like a regular job, but she did creative things in the evenings and on weekends. So yeah, that's how I grew up. I spent most of my growing up years, like the high school years, in Hawaii. Oh, wow. um, and then I moved. Yeah, I went to the same high school as Barack. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and then I moved to San Francisco for college, and I've been here ever since. So almost thirty years. Oh wow! So what did you study when you were in college? I studied filmmaking. Oh, very cool. And did you practice that mm-hmm. at all before you got into? I, I made like my college thesis film and that did really well. It played all around the world. It played as part of Sundance's um, shorts program in 94. Oh, awesome. What was it about? I just, yeah, but I decided that filmmaking wasn't my true calling um, for for reasons that I actually only kind of realized in the past couple of years, like what it was that I didn't love about filmmaking. And one of them is that the process of it is not that fun for me. Mm. Um, Cause like making films is like, 
a years long process mm-hmm. and I need more like instant gratification. Oh, I feel <laughs> like you, it takes totally. so long to, yeah, to see the results of your work. And if you want to make an impact kind of in a major way, then you have to ask for money, you know, right. at least back in the nineties when video wasn't really a thing and you had to make stuff on film, which is super expensive. And so that whole thing, that process like didn't really sit right with me, but I didn't realize that until recently when I was thinking about how much I love my current process and I use whether I like part of the process or not as a gauge for whether I should keep doing something. Oh, very interesting. No, it's definitely true about filmmaking that it's so long. My husband's actually a filmmaker. Um, oh, yeah. yeah so he's, so, he must have the he must have a lot of patience. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely one of those things. It's just like every, a project can take like five years from start to finish, longer yeah. even. So it's like, and you need such a huge crew uh, and like people, you know, like a big team. And it's not like much, it, you can't do it individually really at all. So yeah, that's one of the things I find so like kind of daunting when I think about that kind of work. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so then you went to school for filmmaking and then and then what happened? <laughs> When I was in school for filmmaking, I I worked my way through college. I didn't get any loans or anything. And um, so I always worked in record stores. And I also did, I was a DJ on college radio. So that was kind of my first life. Like music was a huge, it was my entire like social world and like my cultural like entry into the world was like via music. So I've always worked in record stores, mm-hmm. especially in the nineties. Like for me, record stores were kind of the center of the community. Um, so I worked my way through college while working at a record store. And then when I was done with school, I started managing the store and then eventually I became the owner and that record store is called Aquarius records. And it was, um, one of the few like handful of very legendary independent record stores throughout the world. Like people would come, people would fly to San Francisco, get off at SFO airport and come directly to the store. It was very, we were like very cutting edge. We only carried music that we liked. And I did that for 14 years. That's so cool. Is that what Empire Records was based on? The movie. I feel like it would be <laughs> a place store, like that. Our store was more like High Fidelity. Like okay. When I watched High Fidelity. There were like a couple of scenes in that movie where I was the only one laughing in the theater because I was like, "Oh my god, they fucking so got that exactly right." That's so awesome. And San Francisco, yeah. what an amazing place to be in the middle of all that. That's so cool. And I feel like at, yeah. the, at a time when music was just, I don't know, like obviously music music is still huge, but like in the nineties. You know, you have like grunge happening and just so much. Punk, oh, punk rock yeah. and like the noise scene and the metal scene. And, and you know, San Francisco has always been kind of a haven for outcasts and freaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like pre the first and second tech boom. So, yeah, it was a really exciting place to be. I, I chose to live here and I've been very happy. Yeah. Do you... Um, at that time in your life, did you feel like kind of an outsider type of creative person or did you sort of feel like you went along with the mainstream? What, like, what was your, what was your thing? Oh, no, I've, I've always been an outsider and proudly so. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you, when you grow up Asian American in the U S you're kind of an outsider and you can't hide it because it's the color of your skin and it's the way you look. Um, and so I somehow learned early on that it's more fun being an outsider. It's way more fun. I totally (laughs) feel you on uh, that. There's a, there's a kind of freedom in being an outsider and it means that you get to self-define and I'm all about that. Yeah. So, um, so then you, you own the record store. And how long were you doing that? Mm-hmm. 
I, I was at Aquarius for 14 years total. Oh, wow. So and that takes us up to about 2003 or something like that, 2004. Mm-hmm. And then um, after 14 years of doing it, you know, Aquarius will always be my, my baby, but uh, I was kind of itching to see how the rest of the world lived. I'm really omnivorous about life and I want to experience all it has to offer. So I sold the store to a couple of my employees and then I took a year to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. And during that year, um, iTunes was invented, iTunes debuted, um, iPod was already out and then Apple debuted um, iTunes, which was the storefront to purchase digital music. And Mm -hmm. so I joined iTunes quite early on. Oh, wow. They really needed, yeah, they needed music experts to, uh, iTunes was invented by engineers, you know, so they really needed music experts to populate the store and figure out how to best um, talk to customers. Oh, that's so interesting. So, mm-hmm. I mean, because I was thinking, so 2003, 2004, uh, in, in a way, you got out of the record store business just in time, in, you know what I mean? Because now, like, if you look at the music industry now, it's 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 so it's all digital right so um yeah you, i feel like you're right at the cusp of that uh you know the analog digital thing in terms of your career yeah you know i had always been um an apple fan my dad bought me a computer when i was you know a junior and high a sophomore in high school i think so it was kind of like going from one dream job to another record store going to work at apple was like wow kind of thing but i would i would take issue with your comment about um record stores not being i mean yes definitely a lot of record stores have closed with Mm -hmm. the advent of digital but um you know vinyl is kind of this thriving format now again weirdly you know not for the first time since the 70s like vinyl is like a thing again so while there are fewer record stores they i think there are no fewer passionate fans that love having like a physical piece of music that's totally true that's definitely true yeah and i mean that's true of like a lot of art forms and books too like you have your really really your destination bookstores and things like that yeah that's true yeah you know tangible things are great yeah i mean and of course so this kind of brings us up to like your fiber practice how did you then um did you take so that was so i guess there's there's probably i don't know how many years between um working at apple and then finding fiber how did that come about um, so I was at Apple for eight years. I did iTunes for five. And then um, the last three years, I became the managing editor of the App Store. Uh, and that was great. I loved working for that company because yeah. I really believe in everything they stand for. Um, but, you know, I had I was kind of ready for my third life at that point. Mm-hmm. And I realized this is key. Like I realized that my first two careers at the record store and at Apple, um, while I was surrounded by like culture, like games and music and TV shows and, you know, all different kinds of culture and art forms. Mm -hmm. I had spent both of those careers um, supporting other people's creativity and I had never focused on my own. And by this time I was in my late 40s, my mid 40s. And I decided that I had earned the right to just focus on my own creativity and have it be all about me, me, me. Yeah. Hell yeah, girl. <laughs> so that's, yeah. So that, that's why I left. Yeah. Apple. And did you have a, did you have a plan at that point? Did you, had you already started practicing with fiber? Um, nope. I had, I didn't know, I knew I wanted to make tangible objects 
this was in the days of blogging, you know, mm-hmm. when blogging was kind of a bigger deal. And I would just see images of people's tangible, you know, work that they had made, like scrolling across my video, my screen every day. And I would just, I was envious and I wanted to make tangible things, but I didn't know what that would be. Yeah. So the first thing I did was sign up for like a dozen classes, like in any medium that I was even like slightly curious about. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took all of those classes. So one of those was, and, and it w- what was really great about the classes was that I discovered the things that I didn't like doing either. Yeah. And that was great too. Like it's good information because otherwise you spend your time, all your time worrying like, would I like ceramics? Maybe I should try that. Well, yeah. I took the ceramic class and I realized that I did not like it. <laughs> so that was really good. Um, so the two things that stuck were wood carving and I took like a refresher macrame class. Mm-hmm. My mom had taught me macrame back in the seventies. Like we totally made the plant hangers nice. and stuff when I was a child. Yeah, when I was a child, like during its kind of heyday. Um, but I had forgotten kind of how to get started. Mm-hmm. So I took um, a uh, like a, a class to refresh my memory. And within five minutes, I was like, oh, my God, I remember this is what I loved doing this. I just I fell in love with like being in the state of flow and the repetitive motions um, and how so your mind awesome. is really freed, you know, when you're yeah. when you're making. So, yeah. So then I started doing macrame and also wood carving um like pretty much full time wow. I just went really deep once I figured out what I liked I went really deep do you get obsessed with things like that like in general in your life do you find like are you more of um yeah like do you go 150 percent with things that you well when it's something that I'm hoping to make my living on yeah like why wouldn't we go 150 percent on like our careers or our jobs right. and so because I had quit my job to to figure out if it was possible to make a living for my own creativity yeah I totally went deep plus I was su- just super interested and I felt like wow I finally had the freedom to like you know to think and do this stuff like 24 7 right. <laughs> and so to like figure it out I'm just gonna like do it 24 7. Yeah so you kind of knew in your head that you wanted to make whatever it was that you're going to be doing working with your hands your career yeah yeah Yeah. i knew i didn't want to have a job again like a job and i didn't want to have a boss again i was like i've done that like i said i'm really omnivorous about life so i was just like what else is there you know i have friends that you know are, are are most of my friends are musicians and artists and you know i was like wow, they some have, have figured out somehow how to do this. So it can't be, you know, then maybe I can figure it out too. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I came to it the same way, like where I was like, I was working in this job, job, and it was, I'd done it for so long and I totally just wanted to start making stuff. And like, I kind of knew as soon as I found it that I was going to carve this path that was going to make it my career. Like I knew it right away. And it was yeah. like, oh, I'm going to uh, with it as a hobby. Like it was like, nope, this is it. <laughs> like this is my thing. Good for you. Yeah, no, wow, so that's I, amazing. Yeah, so I get it. I totally get it. Where it's like, you don't have another choice. Like this is going to happen and it's going to work, you know? So yeah, I totally yeah. get that. <laughs> um, do you remember who taught your macrame class? Oh yeah, it's okay. it was like a little like two-hour workshop that Emily Katz taught him. Oh, that's so awesome. Day. I didn't know that. That's like, that's so cool. So like, um, are you guys still in touch? Uh, I think we like followed each other. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about like the work that you're doing now. Cause I, so you, so when did you start, when did you start that? Um, 
So this was like in 2013, I think. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. 2013, like five or six years ago. Yeah. Wow. And now it's taken you, I feel like to like different corners of the world, you've been working with different companies on commissions and things like that. Um, Actually, am I wrong to have you, did you just return from Italy? Uh huh. Yeah. I was in Milan. Oh, it's so cool. Tell Tell me a little about that project. I went to Milan for a Milan design week, which is like, like Milan design week is like the South by Southwest for designers. Mm-hmm. It's like people come from all over the world. And I had always heard about Milan design week and never once did I think like that I would be there much less having work there. Um, but I was contacted by, um, by a client. They're called Dodo Pomolato mm-hmm. and they are uh, Pomolato or like a, a high end, like jewelry, uh, uh, company. And Dodo is like the little sister brand. Okay. Um, and they're owned by the caring group who also own like Gucci oh, and yeah. Laurent, like all this fancy stuff. So they contacted me because Dodo was founded like 25 years ago. And their first piece of jewelry was a knot. Um, it. it was it's like a, so a knot beautiful. they had tied with some cord or something. And so they were like, knots are part of our DNA. Um, we found you, Wendy. And for their 25th anniversary, they were making like a gold, another gold knot like a beautiful piece of jewelry that was this knot. And as soon as I saw the knot, I was like, oh, I know that one. I love that knot. Yeah. And they were like, will you come and make um, a piece of a knot installation for our flagship store in Milan and knot installations for their 49, 48 other stores all throughout oh Europe. So God. I was like, that's a big, that's a big project. So we got it done. And then I went to Milan and installed it. Oh my God. That's so huge. Um, so you said we do you have people working in the studio with you i have assistants that i call on when i have a big project that needs to be done in a short period of time mm-hmm. so that and that usually looks like when i'm flying to another city to do a large site specific sort of room sites installation mm-hmm. i'll usually go on instagram and just um, figure out, you know, who amongst my followers lives in that same city and is pretty handy and seems like a cool woman. Um, and so that's usually how that works. But the for the Milan job, for the Dodo job, I was here in San Francisco. So I just kind of called on the local folks here. And so there was a small team of us and we made a thousand knots in like five days. Oh my God. <laughs> it was so God. much fun. Five days. I was going to ask you about the turnaround and I thought it was going to be like six months. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm serious. Like, wait, so like how, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, about a, like a commission like this. So it comes, they contact you. Um, and like, how much time did they give you between like planning and all that to like installation? It really depends on the client. Mm-hmm. So, um, so for example, I work on a lot of in construction projects, like in hospitality and restaurants or, um, you know, uh, company headquarters type things mm-hmm. where they're remodeling or building a building from scratch. So when there are architects involved and um, contractors and like, you know, gajillion dollar development, you know, sort of buildings, mm-hmm. then they're able to contact me pretty early on because my work becomes part of the planning process. Right. And so mm-hmm. that can be like, I already have commissions for 2020 mm-hmm. kind of thing. So like way in advance. 
But with this jewelry um, collaboration, it was a, um, they were just looking for like a single work of art for their window. And so that didn't need to be part of like this, uh, you know, there weren't a lot of other moving parts or other pieces in it. So mm-hmm. they contacted me kind of late in the game, like two months ahead of time. Oh. And that was fine. I mean, I love working on a project by project basis. I don't like repetition. And I like, I like, I like new. I always like sort of stretching my skills and working on something new. So it became this challenge. Like, can I do a thousand knots um, in five days and then, and then like brush ship them to Italy and, you know, can that be done? So it was like a really, it was a great work challenge. Definitely. So when you're, um, when you're, you're, I feel like you're so experienced and you've had these like huge dream commissions when you are approaching something like that and you know, it's a big challenge. Do you, are you still scared when you take up a commission? Like I, I know that I've been, you know, like um, when you, I don't know, when you have something big in front of you, do you still have fear when you approach these things? No, none. No. Yeah. I don't think fear is the right word. I mean, I, I, here's how I look at it. Like I don't, um, I don't, like I said a minute ago, I don't do well with repetition and I'm easily bored. And Mm -hmm. as a working fine artist, I have a level of expectation of my work where it's constantly evolving and changing Mm -hmm. and getting better. So um, with big commissions like this, I always uh, want there to be an element of the unknown because that's how you grow. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so, you know, but it's not fear of the unknown. It's more like, Ooh, butterflies in the stomach, like a little bit of like, can can this be done? Is it really going to look good at this gigantic 100 foot scale? Like you kind of don't know. So there are unknowns, but I'm not fearful of them. I'm sort of in that sort of nervous anticipation thing. So there's always an element of that because having new and unknown parts of my work is what keeps it interesting for me. Right. So like with the thousand knots, had you already created each of those knots already so you knew how to do them or were you figuring out how to do some of them while you were working on this project? They were, I think almost all of them were knots that were known to me, but I know a lot of knots. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sitting in in front of the year of knots for anyone who's watching this on video, they can see um, the year of knots, which was a project that I did in 2016, where I learned a new knot every day for the whole year, the calendar year. Um, So I kind of have a lot of knots under my belt. And I always think of it as a painter who needs a lot of colors, right? You can't just have two or three colors. You kind of need the rainbow. So for me, learning one new knot every day for a year is what gave me um, total fluency Mm -hmm. in the language of knots. And so for for this Dodo Pomolato project, it was actually simple in terms of conceptualizing it because the knots were known to me. They're ones that I love and I knew that they would be really impactful in the installation. Yeah. The unknown part of that project was like, can we get it done in five days? Right. Right. Yeah. And we did. Yeah. I mean, for those of you who are just listening to the podcast and not watching the YouTube video, I highly suggest you go check it out on YouTube because Wendy has this entire wall behind her of these amazing knots. And I mean, it's super impressive. (laughs) Um, So, uh, so logistically, do you have anyone, are you like, do you have um, like a a full-time studio assistant that helps you out with these sort of shipping logistics and like, you know, back and forth with clients and things like that? 
No. Uh, and, and that's, you know, every year I try to grow the business. And so um, you've pinpointed very astutely one of the things that I'm thinking about this year. So mm-hmm. I definitely the time has come where I need help uh, with admin mm-hmm. and not so much with shipping because I don't sell products products anymore. So I don't have a, lo- a ton of like regular shipping. I mm-hmm. usually get blown somewhere to make an installation. But yeah, definitely with the admin and sometimes with the making when they're when it's sort of a crunch time when right. a lot of work needs to be done in a short period of time. So but so I have some uh, part time folks that mm-hmm. come in sort of on an on call basis. Yeah. But yeah, I'm mostly a one woman show, although that may change later this year. You hear that people? <laughs> She's looking <laughs> in, in the San Francisco area. Um, no, look that actually like that is super surprising to me that you don't have a, a full-time assistant because I feel like you're doing so much work and we all know that making the actual work is super laborious. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm super, I'm just so impressed that even that you're dealing with all the admin too. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Well, you know, you just, yeah. Yeah. Somehow. It's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> but you own it, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, so after doing so many commissions and things like that, do you have, um, do you have like a dream commission in your mind of something that you would love to do that you haven't done yet? Like a piece of art or a piece of an installation that you would just love to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's put it out well, there. Let's I, let the universe know about it. Oh, yeah. That's a really powerful thing is when you name the things that you want, that's how you get them. Mm-hmm, because absolutely. then they become, they're, they whether you're actively thinking about them or not, they're sort of like part of your like subconscious sort of vision for totally. what might come next. So the I've accomplished a bunch of the my goals um, so far. Like, Um, The Italy commission was my first international work, and I also have a second piece of international work, so first time outside the U.S., and um, I hit some um, lofty, like, financial goals, which felt great, and what was the other thing that happened this year? Oh, I scheduled my first show at an institution, like, not a gallery, but a museum, so that's really exciting. Awesome. At what museum? The Bolinas Museum, which is here in the Bay Area. Yeah, it's a tiny little museum. That's huge. Lovely. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. That feels really good. And so kind of on my radar for the next few things I want to accomplish are um, I want to understand um, the world of public art. So that's really interesting. And San Francisco has an incredibly robust uh, public art program. The San Francisco Arts Commission is has um, a ton of money because of the way the laws are written here around development. So money to put towards art and art is valued here. Mm-hmm. So um, so there is a support network for making public art. So that's interesting to me. Oh, I love yeah, it. Yeah, and I, I just, idea. and then the other thing is, I just like making big work. I make, I like making larger and larger work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I've made things like one hundred foot long rope um, room dividers. So I want to go bigger than that. You know, I want to make work in an airport one day, sort of airport sized. You yes. know, the way that airports are just gigantic rooms, or you know. Yes, that's so awesome. I can't remember actually in the San Francisco airport. I was walking through there. It was maybe five years ago, and I don't remember the artist's name, so that's really 
Janet, Shitty Janet Eckelman. Yes. Did that's exactly. Yeah. Oh, is it still there? That's that my favorite. Insulation? That's like my, Oh yeah. Oh, that's oh. permanent. That's oh, like okay. one of my favorite works of art on the planet. Yeah. And every time I fly through terminal two, I get to see it. And yeah. usually when I'm flying through terminal two, I'm going on my way to make work for a client. And so it, I feel like her beautiful netted or um, red and purple netted piece kind yeah. of sends send me on my way. I actually met her last summer. I took a workshop that she was holding in France in oh, this wow. like amazing chateau in the French countryside. And when I saw that she was teaching this workshop, I like immediately bought a ticket. And because I really wanted to meet her, I wanted to meet someone who's working at the level that I aspire to work at mm -hmm. and um, to really understand what a life like that looks like. And so it was so fantastic because we're kind of the same age. Um, so we like befriended each other immediately and she's, um, I think we're going to, you know, let's, let's hope that maybe a collaboration or something comes out that of it, but it's awesome. just wonderful to know Jenna Eckelman because yeah. I respect her like crazy. Absolutely. Um, oh, that's yeah. so wonderful that you were able to meet and had such a good rapport. Um, yeah, I yeah. would love to see that collaboration happen. That would be so cool. I would love that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you tell me like a little bit about what it is about working with fiber and rope um, that you think really got you? that just like sort of, you know, um, won you over? What I love about working with rope is that it's a way of drawing lines in space without creating volume, right? So when I make a suspended mobile um, hanging sculpture, it's not weighty. So it doesn't feel like it's sort of above your head and, you know, looming over you in this like heavy kind of way. It's a way of drawing in space. So mm -hmm. that's what I love about rope. And and when you dig into that further, where, where, where I get to is that what I'm really interested in is the notion of the line. Mm -hmm. The line is one of the building block elements of art, you know, alongside like shape and color and those other things right. but the line is what I'm super fascinated by and that's why I like not so much because the line it the way that it travels through a knot is so beautiful it yeah. each knot has a different journey of the line through the knot and so you know as many knots as there are and there are more than 4,000 documented ones um that's 4,000 sort of unique journeys and I'm really fascinated by the concept of journeys not just like mm -hmm. the journey of the line through a knot but the journey of that we all go through through life and how each of ours is unique and is valid and valuable yeah absolutely um so in your practice and in your creating of the knots do you um do you reference anything or do you kind of go by past experience of previous knots you've made or is it like how do you what is your process I'm, I'm sorry like, I, like when you're working you on a new question? knot or a new yeah. a new piece of work like for example um I think you recently posted um I wish I had like a, I wish I had desktop capability where I could just pull up the picture but like it was uh how do I describe it let's see um sorry I'm just pulling up my Instagram second so this is like just for example, when you're doing something like this, am I going to be able to pull this in? <laughs> I'm showing mm -hmm. it here on the camera, you guys, um, mm -hmm. where it's this, uh, you know, completely symmetric. So what do you call this? I don't know what to call this. <laughs> um, 
Well, I'm just sort of doing hitching around a ring. Hitches are a type of knot um, where hitches are knots that um, are made around an object. Mm -hmm. They're different from loop knots because a hitch knot requires the object to be there. If you remove the object, like, you know, like the lark's head that we put on the top of macrame, if you remove that the object that the hitch is made around, then the knot collapses. Right. So that's just a type of hitching around a, a ring. Right. Um, so did you like so, have a concept in mind before you started that piece or did you just no, kind of let no, it no, 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 I'm very, I'm very craft or, um, I approach my work like a craft person, mm-hmm. even though I make fine art and I know there's like a ton of gray area overlap there that right, we don't need right. to get bogged down in. But, um, what I believe about the best craftspeople is that they are, um, experts in their materials. Like mm-hmm. a craftsperson knows exactly how their materials what they will and won't do and how they want to behave. Mm-hmm. And so, um, sorry, I forgot your question. Oh, <laughs> like, like, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, no. Just that like, is it a, is it a go with the flow type of thing for you? Or do you, do you have a preconceived idea yeah. of what you want to make? No, I, so I'm driven by my own curiosity. So in this case, I had, um, I was thinking about rings and sort of, you know, like string art from the seventies. And I think I had seen, um, uh, uh, this type of hitching in one of my super dusty old sailors knotting books, mm-hmm. which are my main resource for my work. Um, and it was, you know, tiny, it was like two inches or something. And so, um, with all of my work, I'm always looking towards the past and thinking, how can I make it contemporary and different? So mm-hmm. in this case, I was like, I'm going to change the scale. I'm going to play with scale here. So I'm going to make, you know, the, the knot that you just showed is like, um, like 14 inches wide. Mm-hmm. That ring is 14 inches wide. So I was playing with scale there. And so that was an experiment. And I experiment a lot. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I've gotten to the point where I'll do a lot of experimenting. And then once in a while, a knot or a configuration or a structure um, will immediately tell me that it wants to become a body of work. Oh, so wow. you can't, I can't make work without experimenting often, because yeah. that's, that's what you have to do in order to find the gems. Yep, absolutely. That's no, very cool. It's so cool learn, like, learn, just learning more about your personal process and how you're making. Um, what does a typical day look like for you? So I take it seriously. This is my job. So I'm here Monday through Friday. Uh, my studio is about 10 blocks from my house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bring my dog to the studio. So she comes with me. And um, yeah, and so I keep try to keep regular working hours like 10 to 6, 10 to 7. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so I try to always start each studio session by learning a new knot or kind of going into beginner's mind, sort of new state, because that is a really great way to set the tone for the rest of your day. You know, I try to keep emails to the afternoon mm-hmm. because when you start off a day doing email, it's just it's just not a good foot to get started no, on. So I try to start with making um, and I try to have a combination of um, art making and admin each day so that, um, yeah, so that each day has, yeah, that stuff. Yeah, you got to get you got to get both of them done regardless, right? (laughs) Even if you don't want to do anything else. Yeah, and that and for me, that's a full day. I host a lot of studio visits. Um, most of my clients are interior designers and architects, so having them come here to see the work and also to see sort of color and material options is very helpful. It's easier than send. It's it's better. It's more effective than sending like a photo of materials and and, and colors. Right, right. So lots of lots of studio visits. Right. Cool. Um. So I find the kind of knots that you create 
mind boggling. I work, I try to like sort of practice them and work on it, but I get very frustrated. Um, you do? I really? do because I don't, I don't know what it is. Some, uh, something about the, the very decorative, like the, the really complicated Celtic knots, the really complicated Chinese knots. I just, I mean, I haven't worked on them that long, but um, I find when I do sit down and try to do them, they get really frustrating. But do you, um, do you like find, do you find that at all? Or is it, is it sort of meditation for you now? Um, let's see when I'm kind of in beginner's mind learning state and I'm trying to learn something new I find that state so pleasurable that even mm -hmm. if the knot is like not turning out well or if it's really difficult that's always you know balanced by the fact that I'm in the learning state which right. is my happy place um but yeah once in a while there'll be a knot that's really frustrating or again because I mostly learn from super old sailors knotting books from the 1930s sometimes they're the language that they use or the hand-drawn like drawings of the knot are super cryptic right, right. um and so that can that can be a hard moment but then when you push through it the reward is sweeter because you've you've really like gone through relative hardship to yeah. learn something that's so and true and then it becomes yeah and then it becomes part of your vocabulary and you know then it becomes yours which right. is a great thing right um so you have a book coming out soon can you talk a little bit about that yeah, so um, it's called The Year of Knots, and it comes out on September September 17th on Abrams. And I wrote the book to answer question, the questions that I get asked the most. Mm -hmm. And those questions are uh, a lot of what you and I have been talking about. How did you become an artist? How did you find the courage to quit your corporate job? Um, uh, how did you find your medium and, and your voice? What's mm -hmm. that journey been like? So I, I'm the kind of person that buys books like that. Like before I quit my job, I really wanted to know what does the life of an artist look like? So right. I figured there's still kind of a need out there for it. And then the other half of the book is I teach some knots just to get people's hands busy, but I don't really consider this a craft book in that, um, it's not trying to be comprehensive. Um, it's a very idiosyncratic introduction to um, the knots that I like mm -hmm. and that I think a beginner might want to start with. Um, but really what I hope ultimately, my goal with the book is that people will be feel um, very inspired to make creativity a part of their life through the medium of a year-long daily practice mm -hmm. or, you know, 100-day project or something like that. Through, like something very small, a daily practice can absolutely change your life. So I tell the story of how I changed my life, but I don't expect people to necessarily become like professional knotters. Right. This is not that kind of a book. I want to inspire people to find their own medium, whatever that medium is, and to ultimately go very deep so that they can find their own voice mm -hmm. um, and, you know, really make creativity a huge part, a major part of their lives because it's a great place to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Oh, I'm very excited for the book to come out. It sounds like it's going to be just wonderful and very inspiring yeah. for a lot of us, for sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when people are, or when companies are trying to find you, do they, um, do you, do you have a, like an art advisory or like um, a gallery right now that represents you or do they just go right to you? I choose not to work with galleries. I don't work with, work with one at this time. People find me. I'm very accessible, you know, right. as is everyone these days. We all have Instagram accounts and um, websites. So 
I've chosen that kind of freedom. And yeah, I think most people find me on Instagram, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you would say most of your marketing is done through Instagram? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's, um, yeah, I think it's a great way to share. I think it's a great way to share not just one's work, but one's process. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just very direct. I mean, that's how, how you and I got to know each other, right. Or became aware of each other's work. So it's a wonderful way to connect. Yeah, no, I do. I totally agree. Um, do you ever find that you, uh, is it ever a problem for you? Is Instagram ever a problem for you? I talk about this a lot with other people, um, just like in terms of it being a time suck or you or playing the comparison game and, and things like that. Or do you feel you have you have some distance from that? Oh, um, no, I don't have anything um, less than positive to say about social media, at least in my experience. You know, when I was posting, so when I did the year of knots, I would post each daily knot that I made. Um, so 366 posts over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. So it was, um, I didn't have to spend a lot of time in that indecisive state where you're like, oh my God, what am I going to post today? Right. I knew what I was going to do. I had this plan from day one that I would post a, a beautiful photo of each knot because I figured that folks might want to follow, follow along, but I also wanted to keep myself accountable. So I was right. like, I'm going to post every day. So it was really nice. So I didn't have any decision fatigue. So Instagram is not fatiguing for me in that way. And even though the year of knots is over, I continue to post um, daily knots or sort of what I'm experimenting with. Um, So it's just, I'm pretty, yeah, like, like I said, I don't have a lot of decision fatigue. I'm pretty clear on like, oh, yeah, this is this should probably go on Instagram. It's lovely. And, you know, it's a step on on that road that we're all on towards whatever we're trying to build. Yeah. I don't find that it's a time suck, but honestly, I feel like it used to be for me, but now because of the way Instagram's algorithms are, it's just, there's so many ads and there's so much stuff that I don't want to see, or I'm like, why is this account being shown to me? I guess I follow this, you know, this account, but it's not real. I don't know. I feel like their algorithms are trying to surface things that are relevant to me, but it's not necessarily so. And then, you know, also you lose touch with people that you do really care about because of the algorithm. It's It's so true. I I know. Sometimes it'll like pop in my head that I haven't seen someone for a while. And I'm like, what are they up to? And why are they not showing up in my feed? So I have to go like stock like a bunch of their photos to make them show up, you know? Exactly. So it takes more work to see the stuff that you want to see when an algorithm yeah. is so, supposed to be a painless way of surfacing the stuff that you're that you want to see. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> not, not to complain too much, but but it is yeah, great. It is a great tool for all of us, <laughs> for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're in the studio working, do you listen to anything or do you watch anything or is it like a quiet space? What do you like to surround yourself? Oh, it's. A- yeah, it depends on what I'm doing. You know, when I'm in that kind of making state, as as we as many listeners, I'm sure will be will agree, like you're when you're making something and you know what you're doing, your brain is just very open. Your brain and ears are very open. So that's really good podcast time or really good music time. Yeah. Of course, when I'm doing email or admin, um, it's better to probably not have anything on at all, or at least some music that isn't going to call a lot of attention to itself. Right. And because of my record store past, I listened to um, a, a an, an enormously wide variety. I was of, thinking of music. you probably have like a crazy um, encyclopedia of knowledge as far as music. What's that? Pretty what are much. some of your favorite? What are some of your favorite bands? Um, I 
I don't really think about it in terms of bands, although I will say that my favorite artist of all time is Osma Tantes. Do you know them? I don't. I'm not that. I don't have that big of a music uh, vocabulary, but... Osmotantis were um, a uh, Brazilian rock trio in the late 60s, and it, it was really interesting. In Brazil in the late 60s, there was a sort of government, there were government restrictions um, about what kind of music could be played on the radio. Mm-hmm. I think I could be getting this wrong, but I think a lot of it had to be Brazilian music. And so for kids in the 60s who were interested in the Beatles, and all they wanted to do was hear Sgt. Pepper's on the radio, there were a lot of bands that kind of sprang up who where it was like this perfect hybrid of traditional Brazilian music oh. and Sgt. Pepper's. And so that's what Os Mutantes is, where they sit in this crazy, beautiful space of doing psychedelic pop um, with a Brazilian um you know they're from Brazil, so right, there's that right. element there. That's my favorite music of all time. But um, oh, in terms awesome. of genres, you'll have to stop me. I could talk about music forever. But in terms of genres, I really love um, Ethiopian jazz. I really love black metal and like all kinds of like really heavy loud music. I love um, rock steady, which is the the uh, rock steady was the scene that happened from 66 to 68 in Jamaica. And it was, it came after ska and right before reggae. Okay. So it's this, Ooh. it's this beautiful reggae type of music that's heavily influenced by American soul. And there are a lot of American soul covers done it in rock steady style. And it's like my happy music. Oh my God. I love it. I feel like you need to write another book about your obscure music tastes. <laughs> So awesome. That's funny. I was talking to my publisher the other day and she's like, what, what's book number two going to be? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe there's something there. Something in, in musicology. Music. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's so cool. Uh, so you also listen to podcasts. Do you have any favorites right now that you want to share with people? I don't think I listen to anything that unusual. It's probably a lot of the stuff that everybody else listens to. Yeah. Yeah, you know, news and all things considered, uh, and like <laughs> you know, the daily from the New York Times. Yeah, cool. Um, so let's see. When you imagine your perfect day, what does it look like? Like, if you had things that you like without obligations, what would you do on your your most ideal perfect day? My best, my perfect days are the days when I don't get, when I'm hyper focused on doing one thing and I'm in the flow state, when, which is that state of being um, in a, a state of blissful productivity where you're really pushing your skills. You're not like um, zoned out, you're zoned in. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're super zoned in on what you're doing. So for me, those are install days. When I've been flown to another city and I'm making a piece of work that with a you know a great little staff that I've that I've hired, a little team, and we have to get it done in three days and it's gigantic, that's kind of a great state to be in because you're hyper focused. You're not yeah. thinking about email <laughs> or like those, you know, anything else except for making the work. That is a great state to be in. Right. So for me, that's a great day is when I'm hyper focused on one project and feeling so good about making something. That's awesome. Um, So some of these times you go into these installation days without really, like without really even having worked with these people before. Have there been Mm -hmm. any situations, like challenging situations and how do you deal with that kind of thing? If like, that's funny. (laughs) Like you don't have to donate examples or anything like that, but just like, how, how do you, how do you go with that? How do you deal with that? 
Oh, yeah. So uh, the funny thing is that that's such a good question. The funny thing is, like I mentioned before, because I work on a lot of products, uh, projects that are where the space is actually under construction, there are contractors, right? And so there's contractor teams, which is a lot of grumpy men wearing hard hats. Yeah. And so they so they see me and my team of of women coming in, you know, with our with our, you know, lugging a bunch of rope. And for the first couple of days, there's always a lot of suspicion. And they're always kind of looking at us like we're crazy. And then by day three, they're always like, you really know what you're doing. And, you know, and then they start coming over (laughs) and talking about the knots that they use on their boat on the weekends or how, you know, and then then we start nerding out on knots. And that's always the greatest moment because, you know, knots are this, I, I think of them as this common sort of universal language that lots of people speak, especially people like sailors and fishermen and you know, bakers and farmers, like every occupation yeah. has their outdoors, knots. Outdoors and so, people, yeah. Other climbers, mm-hmm. I mean, think about that. Those are like, those are knots that cannot fail. Yeah. So there's, uh, it's really nice to meet um, with this common language and this common admiration for the not these humble objects like knots that are in our daily lives. Yeah. So eventually I get to that place with the contracting team, but it always takes like three days. <laughs> oh, that long, actually. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, okay. So we're just going to do some speed round questions. Um, oh, no. <laughs> let's see. Oh, no. no, don't worry. So just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. <laughs> um, Netflix or YouTube? What? Oh, I'm Generation X, so that's Netflix. Okay. <laughs> um, phone call or text? text ice cream or sorbet <laughs> ice cream um <laughs> uh, let's see oh i know the answer to this one i'll ask it anyway what? ios or android oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's gonna be i'm an apple fangirl all the way oh yeah i mean how could you not be you were like really at the forefront of so much of that <laughs> um well and I just really think that iOS is like, it, you know, w- when you're thinking about interfaces, like the Apple design teams, especially the human interface design team, are really thinking about how users um, learn. Yeah. And it's kind of idiot proof. Yeah. And I don't I don't find that that's so of other operating systems. And I, I really, because all of everything we do these days is digital, right? Our devices and our, you know, hardware, they need to be easy to understand. Yeah, I feel the same way. And my mom will not. Like she uses a Samsung phone and she won't switch over because she says iPhones are difficult. And I'm like, are you insane? <laughs> it makes no, no sense. She, no, I agree. What it is is she's just having learning fatigue. She she just has a little bit of fear about having to learn a new system. And no matter how much you tell her that it's easy to learn, it's just that fear that's stopping her from even embarking on it. And I guess I totally get that. Yeah, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's ruining all of our text chains. So no, I have no, I have no sympathy for her old person um, struggles. <laughs> um, actually, and speaking of. Uh, I don't know, old Asian people, how, um, what do your parents think? Like when you went from corporate to being an artist, did, yeah. was that like a thing? Was it? 
Yeah, I thought it was going to be, but they were incredibly supportive. And I think it's because they were so so when I had the record store and I was, you know, just in like deep in the punk rock scene, they were not, you know, excited by what I was doing and didn't understand the value of it. Mm -hmm. But then when I started working at Apple, they, you know, as Chinese parents, they could not have been more proud. I'm sure. Yeah. And so then when I decided to leave Apple, I think after eight years, I had earned their um, confidence mm. that I probably wasn't going to make the wrong decision, that I probably knew what I was doing. Yeah. And even though I didn't totally know what I was doing, but they were like, OK, we can be supportive of this. Right. Yeah, so like, they were she'll be OK. It, she'll be OK. Yeah. Yeah. They were fine with it. But listen, when I left Apple, I was in my mid 40s. Like it took that long to get my parents to just be OK with me and my decisions. <laughs> well, congrats, because. Um, I'm almost fine, totally. my parents are still not really totally on board. Yeah. <laughs> I'm totally there with you, I know. Are you, um, what's your ethnicity? Korean. Oh, nice. Yeah. Are you full Korean or I'm are you half Korean? I know, everybody yeah, asks nice. me that. I think some people think I'm like part Filipino or part Japanese. I think because I dye my hair so much, you know, so it's like mm, a style mm-hmm. thing or whatever, but yeah, full Korean. <laughs> nice, nice. So, yeah. Um, yeah, they're funny. They're they're supportive, but like cautiously so. Like, what are you, what are you gonna do? Like, can you do this forever? Kind of thing. I'm like, does anybody do anything forever these days? You know, I don't know. Maybe it's I don't know. I yep. guess our generation is just different. You know, they did like the they did they do the same jobs for 50 years, and and so they they just find all of us slightly younger people um, scary. I guess the way that we're living our lives. You know. I get it. It's um, it's it's that generation of our parents that you know were kind of coming up in the fifties and sixties. But it, I think it's also part of the immigrant experience, yeah. right? I don't know what generation you are, but you know my parents immigrated, and so for them it was a matter of survival. So you didn't necessarily get to take a lot of risks because right. you had to make very practical decisions about um, integrating into a new society and becoming part of you know a new country. So. Um, it's almost like they didn't have the luxury of, of you know, having as many options yeah, as true. you and I have had where, you know, we get to value things like art and actually we get to actually take the risk to make that, um, a, you know, our careers or yeah. a larger part of our lives. Yeah, definitely. So I think we have our parents to thank for that. I'm very grateful. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It was like some article that came out recently that was saying, like, if you grew up in a middle class or upper middle class family that you're that you're two percent more likely to become an artist two percent doesn't sound big but um but it, it is really? I think, you know because like um you know i posted that i don't know it was an art website but um i'm interested in how they got to that because i can of course being a contrary person i can already think of like so many examples of that not being true yeah do you know what i mean you think? yeah we're I like know. i think like going into things like journalism or um you know, like where you have to intern for free for so long. I feel like you have, like in New York, you know, like where everything is expensive, you have to have some kind of cushion um, just or safety, sort of a safety net or even money coming in to help you out with your rent every month while you're doing all that, that you have to have some something that like gives you that kind of security in order to pursue something like that. I Yes, everything you just said. Yeah. And what I'm thinking about is how... Um, I think the greatest art and especially the greatest American art has been made without that security. I mean, Mm. jazz and hip hop and graffiti art were all made from folks who or parts of society or originated from parts of society that didn't have that kind of 
financial security or standing in society. And yet, you know, I, I think very few people would disagree with me that so, those are some of the greatest art forms that ever come out of America. Oh, I definitely agree with you. As far as the last 30, 40 years, but if you look at like, if you look at like American art pre-1950s, then those people were pretty wealthy. You know, like, I don't know, think about like Pollock and, um, I don't know. I feel like there was there was definitely I don't know. It was like kind of a rich old man, white, a rich white old man thing, you know. Well, Pollock definitely did get rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if he was rich when he started out. I mean, I think he was doing that typical like starving artist thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Sleeping in his studio kind of thing. Yeah. But um, no, but I hear you. Like the I, the subversive I, stuff, the subversive stuff that kind of energizes us today for sure. It comes out of it comes out of you know struggles and um, you know the kind that has like. I don't know, like real heart and um, and triumph within it, you know, to speak, I don't know, to speak truth to power. Sure, absolutely. But we're in a different time. I, when I look back at like what I consider like, I don't know, not six, whatever, I guess classical art in a sense where that, you know, in that sense, I feel like those people were, they came from wealthier families, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. 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 That, that whole system of like, um, Yes, uh, bringing up folk. I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Like, you know, the system of patronage, like yeah. Leonardo da Vinci did really well because he was, you know, sponsored by the Medicis or whatever. Right, right. Um, but the most urgent and clearly speaking uh, art that actually has something fascinating to communicate, I think, has come out of adversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my original state was more like if you're going to go into an industry like working at a gallery, which, well, you know, I went to school, I went to NYU sure. for arts administration. Yeah. It's, you know what I mean? Like you're making nothing, but oh, you yeah. have to dress really and well like, and like, you know, be comfortable, be like schmoozing with all these extre extremely rich people. And if you haven't been around that your whole life, you're not going to, you're not going to do it well, you know? Yes. And it's very off-putting, which is why is I didn't like... do it well. <laughs> <laughs> And another side of that coin is, you know, we, we, the generation that's coming up now are expected to, to do free internships yeah. just in order it, to get exactly. a job, exactly. which is insane to me. Like who can afford to do a free internship? Yeah. Like back in my day, like, like, you know, totally. I would never like, and to this day, I would never ask someone to intern for me for free. Yeah, if you perform either. labor, you should be paid. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And school credit, yeah. that's just bullshit too. <laughs> it's like, no, you got to make some money. <laughs> Yeah, I know that school, that whole school credit thing is like when people ask artists to do something for free for the quote unquote exposure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, like my labor has value. I'm not going to do anything for you for free. Yeah, I hear you. I feel you on that so much. Um, all right. Well, I mean, I guess that's, that's most of the podcast. Um, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're so busy. Um, but yeah, thank you. It was like such a pleasure getting to know you better. You have such a like, a cool past and a cool story and I'm really excited for your for your next steps. 
Oh, yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's been really nice to talk to someone who is like so enmeshed already in this community where your questions were just, you know, I feel like we touched on a lot of stuff yeah. through our natural conversation that I would never talk about with anybody else. Oh, that's well, really thank nice. you so much. I feel like yeah. that's so special. Um, also, I know I'm all over the place. So <laughs> I like when I look at like my questions, like in my structure of my questions, I like I realize I bounce up and down all over the paper. So I'm like, whatever. <laughs> I don't feel that way. I don't think you did. And, you know, I'm a listener to your podcast and I feel like you are a really good listener. And so your conversations appear to me to unfold really naturally based on what your interviewees are thinking and speaking about. Wow. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right. Well, I will be talking to you soon. And thank you so much again. Check the show notes of each episode to get the website and Instagram for each of the fiber artists I speak with. Be sure to give them a follow. And you can view video from this podcast on naromastudio.com slash the fiber artist podcast. If you enjoy the fiber artist podcast, go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you for listening.